Hey everybody, this is Joseph, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast. Each week, this show features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres, and we hope that they encourage you in your faith and work as you listen. This fall, we're preaching a 10-week series of sermons called When Religion Fails, and we're using Jesus' teachings and parables from the Gospel of Luke to reconsider what it means to truly follow Christ. Here's this week's sermon. Let us listen again to the book that we love from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the book we love, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. Today we begin another advent, another four-week journey to Christmas. We've survived another Thanksgiving, and we have turned our attention to Christmas, for better and for worse. I say, for better for Michigan fans. (laughs) I say, for worse for Ohio State fans. The sanctuary looks festive and purpley. Pew torches are lit and blazing with their calming light, the advent wreath has been lit for the first time this year, and we're singing the old Advent carols and hymns. But today we do not begin just another Advent season. Today we begin an entirely new liturgical cycle. Goodbye, Gospel of Luke. Hello, Gospel of Matthew. For vinyl aficionados out there, last Sunday the needle reached the end of the album. And today we have carefully lifted the tone arm and guided it back to the beginning to start our cycle of readings and stories and seasons all over again that we might again, together over the course of this year, trace the life of Jesus together. So I say to you, Happy New Year, Church! 
Let me get something. In celebration of this new year, I raise this U.S. soccer, go, go, USA mug. <laughs> and I lead us in the traditional song. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? Everybody! For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old lang syne. Yes, God bless you, Robert Burns, you magnificent Scotsman, for this poem whose refrain calls out in untranslated Scots words we love to sing, but which we have no idea what they mean. Auld Lang Syne. Literally in English, it means old, long, since, which at first means even less than the original Scots, but when you tease it out, it means something like for old times or for times long gone by. And the poem is really an invitation to consider what should we do with our past? Should we forget those days? Should we set aside our past relationships and circumstances and never think about them again? No, Burns says, we should raise a glass to them. We should sing about them. We should remember them and cherish all that we can from them. It's the perfect New Year's song in my estimation because it calls us to look backward before we begin to look forward. Or perhaps to make it a little bit more adventy, we might say that as we begin a season of stretching forward to await all that God is yet to do in our world, we must also look backwards to see what God has already done. And this is the tension of Advent for the Christian. As Jesus' followers, we are a people whose faith is rooted in the past activity of God, particularly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But we are also a people whose hope for the world rests on a yet-to-arrive intervention of God. Already, not yet, what was and what shall be. And in between the already and the not yet, in between the what was and what shall be, we find ourselves asking the ultimate question. What now? What should we be about? For the next several weeks, Paul and I are going to be preaching through the Isaiah readings appointed for the Advent season. And in our Old Testament reading today, Isaiah, son of Amos, a man who was called Yeshayahu by his friends, a man whose name means the Lord is our salvation, a prophet who was the son of a prophet, if the rabbis are to be believed. This man looks out at the sin and chaos and brokenness and war in his world, and as if the heavenly multiverse suddenly breaks into his vision. Isaiah catches a glimpse of a future reality God is preparing for the world. And this glimpse of the future could not have come at a more opportune moment. A chapter earlier in Isaiah 1, you can see 
Isaiah, the preacher's stern sermon outlining God's grievances against his own people. Isaiah puts a voice to God's frustration with the way things are going in the world. In verse 2 of chapter 1, God says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. In verse 4, Isaiah calls his own people a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity who have forsaken the Lord. In verse 11 of chapter 1, Isaiah questions all of the religious habits and practices. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I am exhausted. I am tired of burnt offerings. In verse 14 and 15, God says, all of your religious festivals my soul hates. God says, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In verse 23 God says, your leaders are rebels and companions of thieves. Everybody loves a bribe. They do not defend the orphan and the widow. Isaiah, the prophet, looks out his window and he sees his world fracturing apart, tearing itself asunder at the seams. He is acquainted with the sins and the calamities raging and he stands in the pulpit and he names them, saying, this is not what God has created us to be about. But it can be a very wearying task to unmask idolatry in this world. To name the ways in which sin has infected everything. Such work can drive somebody to hopelessness and despair. I think of uh, those today, men and women, who have stood in the pulpits of our world and cried out against the way modern societies construct themselves on the backs of the poor and for the benefit of those with power and influence. I think of those who have cried out against the ways in which war becomes a necessary industry in which billions of dollars are made daily by manufacturing and selling hypersonic city-crushing missiles. I think of those who have experienced the murder of a family member, a relative, a neighbor. I think of those who have experienced the soul-robbing humiliation of normalized racial prejudice. I think of friends of mine who have been pulled over for no other reason than that their skin color screamed out criminal. Friends of mine whose doors have been broken off the hinges in police raids based on inaccurate information and whose children and grandparents were forced to watch their house turned upside down. I think of those who have been told that they must endure harassment in office workplaces in order to get promoted. I think of the millions of dollars paid in bribes to put a World Cup tournament in a nation who essentially enslaves thousands of workers to build their stadiums and yet who writes off their deaths as unrelated to their work. Look, the trouble is that when you catch sight of injustice and corruption in the world, you find out just how far the curse is yet to be found. When you see how sin has infected our world, it can drive you to despair and hopelessness and ultimately idleness and inaction. What can we do? in the face of a world gone so far awry. Isaiah glimpsed injustice in his world. He has seen the scales tip in favor of the powerful and against the meek, and he's experiencing perhaps some of that hopelessness. He's not ready to raise a glass of kindness yet to days gone by. He is immersed in a bleak reality around him. The auld lang syne of his immediate past is filled with despair. And terror 
And so it is that to this prophet, to this prophet weary with how bad things have gotten, God invades his vision with all that God is yet to accomplish. God renews the weary prophet with hope for a world yet to be built, a world yet to be renewed, a peace yet to be realized, a chaos yet to be tamed and brought to order. The vision in today's reading from Isaiah 2 is like a lightning burst over a midnight sky. In this brief flare of luminescence, God shows the prophet that even within the sinful corruption of the present age, there is a new world beginning to take shape. And what I find remarkable about today's reading is that this vision, this glimpsing of God's future activity, not only is this enough to renew the prophet's hope, but it is enough to fill him with what one modern prophet called a fierce urgency of now. Isaiah is driven away from despair for the future and instead begins to nurture within his preaching a present tense call to action and faith that starts right now. We do not need to see headlines and news articles to know that uh, that like Isaiah's world, our present moment is also marked by corruption, an absence of justice, an unhealthy power of wealth, an obsession with the self, and a staggering normalcy of nations spending trillions on weapons to kill one another more efficiently. I'm not one of those people who buy into the whole the world is worse now than it ever has before mantra, mostly because by nearly every conceivable metric, that's just not true. It's not that things really are worse now, it's that they've always been worse. The world has been fundamentally dislodged from its proper orientation for as long as it has been since our first parents rebelled against God's intentions in Eden. Greed, selfishness, ambition, power, violence, these things have been part of the human equation for millennia. Their personifications change with every generation, but these forces for evil remain a constant. And so to that end, in sort of a sympathetic union with Isaiah, son of Amos, I'd like to invite us to reconsider his vision today from Isaiah 2, and perhaps you might leave here with your hope rekindled and with your vision for what we do now more clear. The vision begins in verse 2, and it ends at the end of verse 4. It's a rather short vision, really, a paltry three verses. But what Isaiah reports from this vision is so evocative and so inspiring that it has caused countless sculptors and painters and musicians to explore this vision in bronze and oils and orchestras. The vision has formed the basis of many nonprofit organizations around the world and has given shape to many peacemaking initiatives. The vision here is ultimately one of peace, but it's about way more than that. In the vision, Isaiah sees three things, three things that are being renewed, that are being revived, that are being reestablished. These things will come in their fullness at a later time, in days to come the prophet says right at the top, which is a neat way of saying, not today, but someday, surely. First, Isaiah sees a renewed place. I'm reading verse 2. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations 
shall stream to it. The vision here is of the temple, the house of Adonai, as Isaiah calls it, the Lord's house, a very real building for Isaiah the prophet, a very real building that was built upon a very real mountain called Har Zion, Mount Zion. In the vision, this mountain, Mount Zion, is going to be established as the highest of the mountains, raised above the hills. Now you should know that within the Judean mountain range, of which Mount Zion is a part, it is not the highest mountain. Many other mountain peaks are higher, bigger, taller, and Mount Zion is really only about 2,500 feet in elevation compared to the towering 14,000, 15,000, 18,000, 29,000 feet tall peaks around the world. Mount Zion is a rather meager hill. But in Isaiah's vision, he sees the mountain of the Lord's house raised above all other hills. And I don't think this has to do with geology, with the mountain actually becoming measurably taller than other mountains, but I do think it has to do with importance. In the world to come, God sees that the meeting place between heaven and earth will be self-evidently the most important place in the world. In the world yet to come, the dwelling place of God will be to the world as the tallest mountain is, a place of such importance it demands the attention of all people. If you're a Jew being carted off to exile with the temple of God burning to the ground in your rearview mirror, and every ounce of your religious equilibrium being thrown off kilter, remembering this vision of Isaiah may help stabilize your hope for what is yet to come. God has promised to be with his people, to dwell with them as their God, and while everything else may fall apart, that promise will endure, and with that promise comes a measure of hope. First thing Isaiah sees is a renewed place. The second thing Isaiah sees is a renewed people. I'm reading verses 3 and 4. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. To the vision of a renewed place comes a vision of a renewed people, a people comprised of all nations, of many peoples, a people whose tribal ancestry may not derive from Abraham, a people who are suddenly struck by an awareness and a longing to learn what God would want from the human race. So they show up literally at God's doorstep. Many peoples, Isaiah sees, many peoples will go up the mountain in order that God would teach them his ways and they might learn how to obey them. From God's house will go forth instruction, Isaiah says. It will go forth in Hebrew, will go forth Torah, will go forth guidance for how we conduct ourselves in the world. God's instruction will be what God teaches to us, what God reveals to us. No longer will we sit and wonder, what do we do now? How shall we act? Where shall we go? How shall we go there? God reveals it to us. And Isaiah says God is going to sit as a judge between the nations. God will not be absent from international conflict, but fully present, determining what is right between aggressor and aggrieved, between oppressor and oppressed. 
God will hear the cases and decide the outcomes. When everything else in the world is looking to be falling apart, hearing that one day God in all of his righteousness and mercy is going to take a direct interest in deliberating the world's conflicts, well, that might just be the balm that is needed. Hearing that God is going to finally show up and determine for all parties what true justice and equity looks like in such a way that conflict ceases, that sounds like good news to me. We won't have to wonder any longer. We won't have to worry anymore. God is going to judge the world. The second thing Isaiah sees is a renewed people. The third thing Isaiah sees in his vision is a renewed peace. Verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. When God's mountain is raised above the hills... When all nations have gone in search of God's guidance, when God sits in judgment of the peoples of the earth, what then will take place? Isaiah says the nations will respond to this intervention of God by collecting all of their swords and their knives and their guns and their F-22 Raptors and their tactical nuclear missiles, and they will painstakingly transform them into tools used to grow things. It's a bold way of saying that one day peace will enter into the world in such a way that it is no longer calculated or temporary or transactional. It will not be for show. It will not be to gain advantage in further negotiations. The abandonment of the weapons of violence for the sake of tools used to make food will be total and permanent. And there will be finally, Isaiah says, peace between the nations. There will be no conflict and violence and war. The nations will not even learn how to do war. It will be part of the past, a forgotten reaction to non-existent conflict. That's Isaiah's vision, a renewed place, a renewed people, a renewed peace. And undoubtedly, if you're like me, this vision is enticing and hopeful, a utopian architecture immensely preferable to the dystopian brutalism of our present world. We may even hear this vision on the first Sunday of Advent in a church sanctuary in Flint, Michigan, and it may even inspire us to say nice things to one another, Well, like, well, things now look bleak, but one day God's going to fix this world and make it right anticipating what God will do in the coming days is not a bad place to begin an Advent journey, but it cannot be where we stay. The vision of Isaiah is not something that came true in the prophet's lifetime. The undoing of the implements of war and the unity of all nations climbing up God's mountain to his dwelling place is most certainly something we are still anticipating, a reality that has not yet transpired. The vision of Isaiah looks forward to days not yet here, to a moment not yet arrived. And yet, and yet it must be said that it is not enough for the Christian to simply wish one another well this Advent by saying someday all this is going to be over, just hang on. Look at how Isaiah leaves his vision today. Verse 5, come house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. After all Isaiah has seen, it would have been easy for him to just say, okay, people of God, here's the future God is bringing. Let's just wait it out. 
bunker down in your basements and church sanctuaries, huddle together, and don't bother trying to do anything else on behalf of this broken world. But no, Isaiah responds to the future work of God by calling his listeners into present-day action. Come, let us walk presently in the light of the Lord. It's as if Isaiah is saying, look, people, don't sit back and wait for this day to come, but now that you know the trajectory, now that you know the direction the world is moving, now that you know what God's reign of peace and justice is going to be like, start moving that way now in whatever small way you can manage. Advent is not a season for us to wait in inaction. It's not a season for pacing a waiting room, hoping for good news from the operating room. This is a season of glimpsing the blazing torchlight of the future reign of God and then using that light to guide our steps right now. What's more, for Christians, we who believe that the fullness of God was made to dwell in Jesus of Nazareth, so much so that to hear Jesus is to hear God, and to listen to Jesus is to listen to God, we accept that part of Isaiah's vision has come true. For the mountain of the Lord's house has been established, not in bricks and mortar, but in flesh and blood. All nations have streamed to it as the Pentecost wind gathered together those from the ends of the earth. In Christ, we can say that out of Zion has come Torah, God's instruction, as Jesus showed us in word and example what it means to be God's people. In Jesus, we see the word of the Lord coming to us from Jerusalem as, as Jesus, the very word of God, hung from a cross and screamed out words of forgiveness and mercy on behalf of his tormentors. In Jesus, as he ascends to the heavenly places to sit at God's right hand, we see him becoming the ultimate judge of this entire world, ourselves included. Part of the vision has been fulfilled in ways that are surprising, and yet there is part that is still left to the future. For we have not yet exchanged our weapons for farming tools. We have not yet given up our preference for might and strength to take up the humble work of growing and planting. But this is Advent. In a nutshell, the celebration of the almost, the not yet, and the already. And in between the not yet and the already is every one of our lifetimes gathered here in this church. The call to us this Advent is a call to a present action, to do the work of Christ now, to love our neighbors now, to allow ourselves to become so preoccupied with the work of the kingdom of God now that we are not paying attention and giving in to the cynicism of the narratives of our present world. We are called to live honorably as in the day, as St. Paul said in Romans, to stay awake and keep alert, as Christ says in the Gospels, and to not allow the story of this world to drive us to idleness. As Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. Or as Isaiah the prophet might put it, come house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, amen. Thanks for listening this week. 
The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.